are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. Psalm chapter 90 emphasizes the fact that on the average, we will live approximately 70 years. Now, that's not a prophecy or a promise. That's a general principle. And for some of our extended family members, they won't live to be 70. And the truth is, some of us won't live to be 70 either. We begin to realize just how fleeting our lives are. They're short-lived. Even our accomplishments seem to be so unsatisfying. Everything is elusive and brief. This morning, we're going to start a series through the book of Ecclesiastes. We've entitled it, Wise Living in Feudal Times. And that really describes the world that we live in right now. Now, I didn't decide on a whim to walk us through the book of Ecclesiastes. No one in their right mind would do that. I chose this study over seven months ago. And what's astonishing, that same time, I chose a sermon title for this morning's text, the opening installment, Here Today, Gone Tomorrow. And if that isn't true of what we're feeling, I don't know what is. The reality is, this has been the most difficult season in my entire pastoral ministry of 30-some years. Lori and I have never seen so many sudden and unexpected deaths and near deaths. Things are unpredictable. We can't count on tomorrow. We truly are here today and seemingly gone tomorrow. And that includes even if we live 70 or if we have the strength, 80 years. The reality, our lives are fleeting they're short-lived, they're brief. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. How can we, in a sense, number our days so that we might present to the Lord a heart of wisdom? That's Ecclesiastes. Now, what's interesting about Ecclesiastes is it's asking the question, how do we find meaning and purpose in life? For the last 20 years, I've been focusing in on research that's been done by social scientists with college students. And the question is always posed, what is very important to you? And there's all kinds of rating scales and percentages and things like that. And we all think we know what's important to college students, don't we? A college degree, a spouse, making a lot of money, buying a house, that's what we tend to think. But there is one particular need, one particular desire that outranks them all. An overwhelming amount of college students have as their number one need, their number one desire, what's most important to them, finding meaning and purpose in life. There's no runner-up 
If we want to talk about making money, that's down in the teens in terms of percentage points. Approximately 16% or so. And it keeps getting lower and lower with every passing year. Because now people want to be happy in their jobs and they don't care how much they make. That's true of college students. That's true of all of us. And what we want is to find meaning and purpose in life. Ecclesiastes will actually help us with that. Ecclesiastes has been called the strangest book in the Bible. It's like a riddle wrapped up in an enigma. People don't know what to do with Ecclesiastes, and very few pastors choose to preach Ecclesiastes because it's a dark book. It can even be a very depressing and distressing book. But you'll find throughout glimmers of grace and hope. There's all kinds of controversy as to how Ecclesiastes should be understood. Is it talking about an unbeliever? Is it talking about a wayward believer who has fallen away? My understanding of Ecclesiastes is it's talking about all humankind. Every single solitary human being, unbeliever, believer, young, old. This book tells us how life really is. And it's sobering, let me just tell you that. But boy, is it powerful. Because it will grab us by the lapel, so to speak, and say, pay attention. What I'm about to say is the unvarnished, unadulterated, full-on truth of this world. So I'd love it if you would turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. All you need to do is turn halfway into the Bible, run into the Psalms, and then move forward into Ecclesiastes. It's right around the corner. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The author of Ecclesiastes is going to give us two life lessons in this passage. And he's going to help us to understand how we can find meaning and purpose in life. So look with me at the first life lesson. It'll come as no surprise. Life is fleeting. The author is going to argue that truly we are here today and we are gone tomorrow. That life is brief. And we need to be prepared for that sobering reality. Look with me at verses 1 through 7. First, in verses 1 through 3, we find out who the author is, and the author gives his theme. Beginning in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything about Ecclesiastes, one of the most disputed parts of the book is who wrote it. I'm not going to bog down in all those details. For those Bible students who really want more, at the Welcome Center, there's an overview that I've written that may be helpful to you. It's also available on our church website. I would encourage you to take a look at that if you'd like to go deeper. But the nutshell is this. Even though it's disputed because the author does not specifically or explicitly name himself, I think the person that best 
defines authorship, and this book is King Solomon, who was the most well-known of David's sons, who was truly the king of Israel. And what's fascinating about King Solomon is when he became king, he was given the opportunity to ask for anything, and he asked for wisdom. First Kings chapter 3 talks about that. And God gave him wisdom, wisdom like no person has ever known outside of Jesus himself. Solomon is notorious for having explored everything that this world has to offer, wine, women, wisdom, work, and wealth, what I call the five W's. I mean, if anything could be tried, Solomon tried it. Ecclesiastes is an experiment on trying to find meaning and purpose, ultimately outside of God. Solomon was the Elon Musk of his day. He became Hugh Hefner of Playboy in many respects. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. How you do that, I have no idea, but he did it. He was a man who had everything and anything that this world has to offer. What does such a man have to say about everything that this world has to offer? Verse 2 tells us, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, he's called a preacher. Some of your English versions will have teacher. He's a man who preached. He taught. He pontificated with wisdom literature and poetry. But this is not how a preacher should start a sermon. You don't start by saying, all is vanity, everything is vanity. He uses the term vanity, or some English versions have meaningless five times in one verse. I mean, preaching students know you start with a bang in most cases. You hook the audience. You draw them in. But not Solomon. Everything is vanity. Aren't you glad you came to church today? The question is, what do we do with this type of language? Because this is depressing. This is demoralizing even. And that's how the book starts. Sadly, it gets worse as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes. So you're in for a great 2022, let me tell you. What we know is, Whatever vanity is, it's the key word of the book. Now, the Hebrew word is havel, and you're going to hear that term a lot. And the reason for that is, this term is used 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's used in every chapter except one, chapter 10. And it actually brackets the book, showing its importance Chapter 1, verse 2, and then all the way into the final chapter, chapter 12, verse 8. When you have a literary feature like that, the writer is trying to say, this is the key word, 
not to mention 38 uses. The problem, though, is vanity is not the best translation. Worse yet, meaningless is an even worse translation. Sorry for those of you who are reading the NIV. All of our English Bibles are excellent, but in some cases, words are not translated in as helpful of a way as possible. Think of the word vanity. When you think of the word vanity, you think of pride, arrogance, and hubris. I mean, here's some trivia for you. That little counter in front of the mirror in your bathrooms is called a vanity because you're looking upon your glory and you're worshiping and you're becoming consumed with self. Vanity is not the meaning of havel. The issue is complicated because the King James Version loved to use this term, and many of our English versions continued to utilize the translation of the King James, but this is an archaic term in this particular context. The bottom line is this, havel, whatever it is, the world is full of it. I mean, that's the bottom line. So when you're looking for a way to describe this world and you don't want to curse, use the Hebrew word havel. No one will know what you're talking about, but that's okay. It's an inexhaustible term. That's a part of the issue here. So if you read a commentary or a study on Ecclesiastes, you'll read feudal. You'll read fleeting. You'll read meaningless. You'll read vanity. You'll read a whole host of translations. But this term actually means many different things in the course of Ecclesiastes. So when we come to it, we have to let the term mean what it means in a given context. But if you asked me to describe the word and to define the word for you, I can do that. In most cases, it means vapor or breath. What's interesting is when we look at the use of Havel in Genesis chapter 4, it's the same term used for Abel. The same Hebrew term. And Abel's life was here one day and gone the next. What a depiction of vapor and breath. Solomon is saying, all is vapor or breath. All is filled with a lack of significance, meaning, and purpose. I mean, when you look at this woman who is exhaling on a cold winter day, you can see her breath. It's here one moment, it's gone the next. It's transient, it's, it's temporal. But not only is it transient and temporal, it's elusive. If I tried to grab a hold of the breath of someone else or even of myself, what would happen? I, I couldn't do it. So our lives, they are fleeting. They are elusive. So when you read vanity or you read meaningless in your English Bibles, think breath, think vapor. And you may even want to write that in your Bibles or put that, type it in in your electronic device. 
for your notes for the future. But if what I'm saying still doesn't make a lot of sense and you need some help, I'd like my wife Lori to come on stage at this time. And we're going to show you more of what your life is like and what your lifespan is like. This particular balloon that Lori is going to pump up represents your life. Think Psalm 90, verse 10. About 70 years, maybe 80 years if you have strength. There's your life. Are you ready? Release. There she goes. Now, you're probably wondering why I called Lori up here. It's because I'm not mechanically inclined enough to actually do that exercise. That balloon's going to stay on the stage. And I want you to look at that balloon and realize that's your lifespan. That's, in a sense, your life. Here today, gone tomorrow. Havel! It's all Havel! That's what Solomon is saying. Now, I may not like that, and you may not like that, but he's speaking in black and white language. He's speaking with no subtleties here. He's getting in our face, and he's saying, this is what I've learned, and you're going to learn from my memoirs. I'm going to share with you everything that I've experienced, and what I've discovered is Havel! It's all Havel! Now, in verse 3, we get to the question of the book. So, what I would do is I would circle number 3. Circle verse number 3. This is the question of the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's delivered in verse 3. What advantage, or literally gain or profit, what gain or profit does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? Now, this concept of work is not just work as we know it. This is your life. This is speaking to those of you who are students. This is speaking to those who are working. This is speaking to those who are enjoying retirement. It's all the things that we do under the sun. Now, I've already talked about the key word in this book. What's the key word? Havel! Look at you Hebrew scholars. Here's the key phrase. Are you ready? Verse 3, under the sun. 29 times this phrase occurs. Under heaven is used three more times. It's a synonym. What Solomon is speaking to is everything under heaven, under the sun. He's speaking horizontally. He's not speaking vertically about our relationship with God. He's just giving it to us straight about how life really is. And he says, ultimately, everything that's done under the sun, it's Havel. There's nothing that ultimately is going to give us the meaning and the purpose that our hearts crave. Many years ago, when my children were growing up, we had hamsters. Now, I know this is going to be hard to believe, 
But in a two-year span, we had over two dozen hamsters. Now, the reality is we needed a new hamster supplier because some of our hamsters only lasted a few days. And of course, you know what you have to do as a parent. You have to keep replacing the hamsters so that your kids aren't upset. My three children and Lori are so intrigued with hamsters, but I've always thought these rodents, they don't do anything. I mean, all they do is they eat, they drink, and they make messes. And then, rather quickly in our experience, they die. Worse yet, what do they do at night? The slide shows you what they do at night. They could even keep me up with all their noise. I mean, I look at hamsters and I'm thinking, what's the purpose in a hamster? Even though I love them and they're cute and they're cuddly, their lives have no ultimate meaning or purpose. One of our hamsters was named Hammy. I know that's not creative. We had a number of very creative names. But Hammy the hamster. Just, just imagine Hammy looking at our lives. What do we do? We eat. We drink. We work. We come home and watch TV. We sleep. We start over. If Hammy was looking at our lives he would see the very same thing. He'd be saying, what's the point? What's the purpose? Where's the meaning? That's the reality of life under the sun. Make sure you understand that. Life under the sun, from a horizontal perspective, not from a vertical perspective. Now, in verses 4 through 7, what Solomon is going to do is very creative. He's going to speak about earth, wind, and fire. No, no, that's a band that I used to love, still do. He does something similar. And you can see it right in the text in verses 4 through 7. Earth, sun, wind, and rivers. That's pretty close, isn't it? Verses 4 through 7 are going to use nature to help us to understand how fleeting our lives are. In verse 4, we see the earth. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Now, obviously, we're dealing with wisdom literature. With literature that can be poetic at times. So, Solomon doesn't mean that the earth is eternal. Only God and people are eternal. But he's saying the earth is going to be around a long time. He's saying the earth has been around a long time. But yet he's acknowledging the transient nature, the fleeting nature of humanity. Now look carefully at verse 4. Typically we say a generation comes and a generation goes. But Solomon reverses it. A generation goes and a generation comes. In other words, those of us who are living right now, we're here today, we're gone tomorrow. It's not about our generation, it's the generation that's coming up through the ranks, which is why we talk about being next-gen focused, because we care about the next generation. We know that our lives are fleeting. 
two of the people that I deeply loved and cared about passed away in their 50s in the last several weeks. Not in their 70s or 80s. I'm in my 50s. I know how fleeting life is. You know how fleeting life is. We move from the earth to the sun in verse 5. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. So the sun rises, it sets, and the language is not just that of hastening, it literally is the term panting. <laughs> the, the sun is running, the sun is sprinting to be able to accomplish its responsibilities. And it does it over and over and over and over. We move from the sun to the wind. Look at verse 6. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along. And on its circular courses, the wind returns. So we move from the east and west of the sun to the north and the south of the wind. There's five participles or verbs that are emphasizing the repetitive nature of what the wind does. Five. It's monotonous. It's continuous. It's again and again. It's been said the most difficult part of daily living is that it's so daily. It's hamster-like. It's nature. And the depiction of what nature does over and over and over and over. But we're not done yet. We move to the rivers in verse 7. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. Old Man River, he just keeps on flowing, doesn't he? I mean, we have all of nature repeating its ways again and again, over and over. And that is to remind us of what our lives are like, repetitive, monotonous, but also transient and fleeting. Because unlike God's creation, in terms of our earthly existence, it's short-lived. Because remember, if this represents your life, this balloon on the stage, and we've seen our peers nearly die or die, it ought to sober us. Not that we can't enjoy life. That's one of the themes of Ecclesiastes. Enjoy life. The good life. But Solomon is saying, understand that living for this world order, it's fleeting. It's just not worth it at the end of the day. Now look with me at the second life lesson. We've already seen that life is fleeting in verses 1 through 7. Now Solomon is going to segue into, are you ready for this? A second life lesson. 
And this one is especially encouraging. Life is disappointing. So not only is life fleeting, it's disappointing. Solomon is going to say no matter what you experiment with, no matter what you pursue, no matter what you achieve, it's Havel. It's not going to accomplish what you desire. It's not going to satisfy. In verse 8, he says there's no satisfaction under the sun. I love how he begins. All things, did you catch that? All things are wearisome. Yes, they are. Preach it, preacher. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Some of you know that a few months ago when we were in our first Peter series, I confessed my sin of seeing the Rolling Stones in concert. Well, Mick Jagger and the Stones could append verse 8. Remember, I can't get no satisfaction. I mean, that's Mick and the Stones. They've tried it all like Solomon. And what do they say? I can't get no satisfaction. It's elusive. And this verse says, no matter what you speak, no matter what you see, no matter what you hear, it's never enough. And isn't that true? I mean, most of us like watching movies. We like watching Netflix. We like playing video games. We like going on vacations. We like a particular hobby or leisure activity. And no matter how many times we experience those types of things, it's never enough. We're always thinking about what comes next because satisfaction is not found in anything that we see, anything that we hear, anything that we tell. It's not. And that's what Solomon is arguing. And I want us to remember, this man had it all. This man lived the life that you wish you could try. And he says, it's all Havel. What's amazing about this is if we take this to heart, it'll change the way we think. It'll change the way we live. Our priorities will be completely and radically different. Not only is there no satisfaction, there is nothing new. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. Solomon writes, That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this? It is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. This is so amusing to me. And I think Solomon is truly talking tongue-in-cheek to some extent. He's saying many of us always think in the realm of new and improved. We think that we've discovered things that no one else has discovered. So we think about patents and we think about ways that we can take credit for that which we have discovered. But the reality is 
We think we've discovered that which is new, but it's only because we're not history students that we don't realize that we're just repeating that which has been discovered and recycled through over and over and over. There's nothing new under the sun, not in the truest sense. Most of us will never think an original thought in our lifetime. We'll never speak something that is particularly profound in light of human history under the sun. This is humbling, especially those of us who want to be creative, who have a flair for the dramatic. The reality is, while many of us may strive to be entrepreneurs, we're just learning from the best and standing on their shoulders, trying to take what has been done to maybe a new and improved fashion for our minds, for our hearts. But in light of human history, often what was done in the past is even better than what is done in the present. Nowhere is this more true than technology. <laughs> Now, some of you are going to be very unhappy with what I'm about to say, because three years ago, I spoke of Apple technology and received some booze, and I know where I'm speaking, and I know the difficulty, but I also know that many of you use iPhones, so I know I can get away with this, or else you're hypocrites, right? I had to move from a Droid device to an Apple device a number of years ago. And I started with the base model. And I have upgraded all the way to the iPhone 6. <laughs> I mean, these are huge steps for me. I mean, I'm technologically advanced. But here's the problem. Every single time that there's an update or a revision or a new and improved Apple device, people tell me, I have to have it. I have to have this. My life will never be the same because it's so much better. There's these new features and I have to have it. And not only do I have to have it, Keith, you have to have it. Your life will be transformed by this new iPhone. I have to always tell them, even though I know we're at the iPhone 13, I'm totally content with my 6. Now, eventually, I'm going to have to upgrade because <laughs> my, my phone will not be able to be updated on any way, shape, or form. But I'm going to enjoy it as long as I can because I know what many of you know is just one supposed improvement, maybe a couple and every time I evaluate, do I need to upgrade, I look at the new and improved versions and I'm like, <laughs> that's not going to change my life. That's not going to help me. And I don't have over $1,000 to drop, if you know what I'm saying. Nothing is new and improved in the truest sense. We may think it. We may feel it. I may be tempted. But the reality is, Solomon would say, trust me, I've had it all. I've done it all. Nothing is new under the sun. Now, verse 11 
is a powerful verse as we conclude this section. Solomon is going to say, ultimately, are you ready for this? There is no remembrance under the sun. And this is straight out of the text because he repeats it twice. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. No remembrance, no remembrance under the sun. We can demonstrate this by thinking of athletes, correct? One blown hammy, you're done. One career-threatening injury, you're done. You're yesterday's news. I don't care who you were or even who you are at that moment. It's, what have you done for me lately? I mean, just stop and think. What is a week from today? I heard it. Super Bowl Sunday. This is the biggie. Advertisers are going out of their minds. They've been planning this. They've been spending their millions upon millions of dollars. They're ready for the big day. And so are the teams, and so are the fans. But the moment the game is over, every one of you, you're going to be thinking about Valentine's Day, which comes next day. <laughs> At least, men, you better be thinking about Valentine's Day. But here's what's even more sobering. Every time in any sport the championship game is played, I go to ESPN.com, and I know what's going to come. They're going to be predicting who will be the top team or teams the following year. They're thinking of Super Bowl 2023. 20, There's no time for celebrating because it's yesterday's news. Now, here's what's hard. No matter how much we love the people in our life, no matter what our family tree was like, Ask yourself an important question. Could you tell me about your great-great-grandmother and grandfather? Maybe a few of you could. But if I go back a step further, many of you, if not all of us, really couldn't adequately explain the significance of this person's life. And they're a part of our family. I cannot even tell you the name of my great-great-grandmother and grandfather. That's just open confession. As much as we love the people in our lives, Solomon is trying to help us to understand, as difficult as this is, life under the sun is filled with futility. And after the memorial services, after the celebration of life services, even in the immediacy, we have to go on with our lives. And a hundred years from now, two hundred years from now, we will all be forgotten on this earth, on this earth. Now, please understand, I hurt for those who have lost loved ones. I have been grieving. You have been grieving. We should be grieving. In the cases that we're dealing with, the Bible teaches not as the world grieves, for we know where these individuals are right now. But it is sobering. It is painful 
And God is compassionate. He's merciful to us in the midst of our loss, in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our horrific pain. But let's not blunt what Solomon is trying to say. Let's not pull the punch. Let's allow Solomon to hit us in the face or to knock the wind out of us. Because what he is saying will change the way each and every one of us lives. If we go back to the key question, the key question of the book and of this section, it's verse 3. What advantage, profit, or gain does man or woman have in all their work which is done under the sun? It's that key word, gain, profit, or advantage. If I turn to Matthew chapter 16, Jesus, perhaps even thinking of Solomon's words, says this in chapter 16, verses 26 and 27, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will then repay man according to his deeds. Now, if we drop back to Matthew chapter 6, and I just want you to listen to these words, because Jesus is telling us how to find profit or gain. And what he's arguing is there is no gain apart from God. That sums up Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and he's going to reiterate it in Matthew 6, verses 19 and 20. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Treasure, treasure, literally where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Solomon says we ought to be about eternal profit, eternal gain, eternal advantage. There is no gain apart from God. While Solomon was not explicit in this particular passage, the New Testament is very explicit. So, under heaven, we live our lives with a heavenly focus. We rivet our gaze on heaven. We treasure up for ourselves treasure in heaven by investing in people, by loving the community of believers, by spending time fixated on God's Word. And that which is ultimately eternal, God's Word and people. There is no gain apart from God. That is what Solomon is saying. And that is what we need to be reminded of this morning, no matter what life brings, even this week. Let's pray together. You are our gain, Heavenly Father. You are our prophet. Our souls yearn for you. You have created a God-shaped vacuum within us that can only be filled with you. There is no gain apart from you. Help us to recognize that. Father, I pray for so many people who are grieving this week, so many people who have come to the precipice of recognizing the fleeting and disappointing nature of life. Lord, may you cause us to seek you. 
Thank you, Lord, that I know for a fact our student ministries are seeking you. They are setting an example for our church of what it means to pray, of what it means to come together in community and to prioritize that which is eternal. Help us as the Crossroads family to do the same. This morning, if you're realizing the futility of your life and you're looking for wisdom, the Bible teaches wisdom can only be found in Jesus Christ. So if you're viewing online, if you're here in person today, you have the opportunity to make an eternal decision to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, to find the purpose, the significance, and the meaning that you crave, that you were created to discover. Would you acknowledge your sin? Would you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and believe that his death, his resurrection is enough to satisfy God's demands? And that the moment you believe in Jesus, you cross over from death to life and experience the assurance of a relationship with God through Jesus. You can do that today. We'd love to invite you to the foot of the cross so that you could pray with our prayer team. If you're viewing online, we have an online prayer team. You can pray with them and you can trust in Christ and find purpose and meaning, not just in this life, but in the life to come. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us wisdom in the midst of futility. We love you and we praise you in your name. Amen.